Medic Mindset is supported by educational tech company iSimulate. Their partnership allows me to keep the full library of episodes available to you on multiple platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, however you listen. I'm so thankful for their continued support. I personally use their products in my classroom, and I'm proud to call them a partner. Thank you, iSimulate. Really, as healthcare providers, healthcare clinicians, and EMS as part of that, our goal is to navigate people through decisions in a way that aligns with their values. But if we don't know what their values are, if we don't know what's most important to them, then we're navigating according to our beacon or what standard of care beacon there is, not theirs. I have a log of all the places EMS is mentioned in the book which is something that I did on subsequent readings. I'd read it a few times. I gifted it to a bunch of people, but I hadn't, until I had it in this class, I never sort of read it with an EMS mindset. The one thing that is somewhat disappointing in this book is the portrayal of EMS. And in every single situation that EMS is portrayed, they're rushing somebody quickly somewhere. (laughs) I want them to be the types of clinicians that that's, That is not the only, right? Like rushing somebody somewhere is not really, although sometimes the public sees that's what EMS is, that they are so much more than that. And then if this book got rewritten later on, um, that somewhere in there would be a really compassionate conversation. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. This episode was born from an accident. There's another format of Medic Mindset episodes called Mixtape. It's where I asked three guests one question. In a recent mixtape episode called The One Book, I asked the guests to recommend one book to new paramedics. But in classic medic mindset interview fashion, I couldn't just leave it there. I wanted to dig deeper. Is there a book you go back to over and over? What book would you recommend to a new paramedic? Are you a hard copy book reader, an e-reader, or an audiobook reader? These are some of the questions we dig into. So here we are. It's long format. It's a deep dive, not a surface touching of the toes in the water. Medic Mindset listeners have proven through the years you aren't afraid of committing to 45, 60 minutes to one topic. So pop in your earbuds, do the housework, enjoy your commute. These episodes are for you. The medic that's a little different than the masses of medics. You feel and reflect and are infinitely curious. In this episode of Reading, we hear from Dr. Maya Dorsett. She's an EM physician and an EMS educator, and she's my professional soulmate. Listen in. You gave me a book called The Culture Code. I wondered why you sent me this. When I sent you this, um, I didn't know you as well as I do now. We had... Um, started working together on a workshop about teaching adult learners. We'd actually never met in person, but we spent a lot of time talking about how do we create educational environments that are really positive um, and that encourage the traits we want to encourage. I'd read this book for a book club that we do in emergency medicine and EMS here. This book is about the dynamics of successful cultures, but I think what it's really about is leadership and what can you do as a leader to create a really positive culture. I think as educators, we are leaders in the classroom 
and we get to sort of model what a positive and nurturing culture that sets people up for success. And I just thought that it was something that you would love and sort of see depth in the same way that I love this book and saw depth in it. So I talk a lot about creating psychological safety in the classroom because I think that's where learning happens best. You can't absorb, learn in an educational environment if it's just constant like curveballs and all that. So this book talked a lot about creating safety and how that happens. And a lot of the things I underlined, they were talking about really subtle, subtle, tiny little things. It's not just some big sweeping, like perfect motto or something like that. It's these little small micro interactions. The author talks about signals, how we kind of signal to each other that, yep, you're safe. I'm safe. We're, we're nice here. And I actually read this book before you gave your presentation and you gave this talk on feedback. One of the really valuable things I took from what you talked about was um, that I actually, you know, I repurpose, I, you know, <laughs> I repurpose, which is when somebody takes the time to give somebody feedback, when it's done the right way, the reason that you take time to give somebody feedback is because you find them valuable. And it's a way of actually saying that I care about you and I care about your success. That was sort of modeled in what you talked about there, but it's modeled in so many different ways through the examples in this book. There's a a basketball coach, the coach of the Spurs that's talked about here. There's this quote, and I'm going to read it because I'm a quote lover. And it says, he delivers two things over and over. He'll tell you the truth with no bullshit, and then he'll love you to death. When you teach like that, or when you lead like that, I think you create the ability to learn because people are not afraid to make a mistake. They're very willing to learn from their mistake instead of sort of letting it eat from them alive. And it talks a lot, this book talks a lot about um, vulnerability and sort of the importance of that and how really that needs to be modeled by leaders. I have to say, um, you gave me two books too. Um, (laughs) So we gave each other books and after we met for the first time and we and we had both sent each other books, I was like, he's one of my favorite people. I knew I, <laughs> I, knew I liked her, but I think that there is a, a certain, um, I don't know, there's a certain thing about people who think to give other people books that I think connects those kinds of people. So I felt very like, I was like, she's like a professional, I told him, I was like, she's like a professional soulmate. <laughs> yeah. Well, it- it's our love language, the book giving. What it really means is that we've spent enough time getting to know each other to think, oh, I think Maya would like this, right? It means I, I thought of you. It wasn't just I'm out sending the same book to everyone because I want everybody to you know, think this way I think. It's more I think Maya would, sen- would appreciate this. And what I sent you was completely unrelated to medicine. It was uh, Steal Like an Artist was one of the books by Austin Cleon, and he lives in Austin, actually. And it's all about creativity and where it comes from. And the title comes from this theory that he has that there are really no original ideas, that really we're all just kind of building on the influences of the people around us, and that it's okay if your work looks similar to someone else's because you've put your new slant on it. And you do a lot of creative stuff. I think you take a lot of pride in like the aesthetics of your presentations. I do. Um, so I, th- I thought you'd appreciate it. That book epitomizes why um, I read lots of books, which is to get good ideas. Like one of the lines in it is something um, like your job is to collect good ideas. And that's, I think, what a lot of the books I 
read that are nonfiction or even fiction, right? Is like, it's this idea collecting and a lot of sort of the analogies and things that I use and think about the way I teach and practice, et cetera, come from books that I've read. That are non-medical. It's multidisciplinary. Exactly. I think the most useful books that I've read from perspective of practicing medicine are actually not medical books. <laughs> I mean, some are sort of medical, but um, but they are they're not useful from like a, a medical sciencey perspective. They're useful from thinking about sort of cognition, but like the relationships of one human to another, and sort of the building of connections and how do we think and the rest of this stuff. So. I mean, I guess that's all sort of medical, but not really. It's not, you know, some like hard facts in science. I mean, some of it is, but. It's not really clinical. It's not clinical. That's it. That's it. It's not clinical. It is science, but it's not clinical. And the great thing about medicine is it's human, right? So as long as you're learning something about humans, it's useful. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So what are you reading right now? Um, I often read sort of two books at the same time. Mm-hmm. I read um, something that's nonfiction, which often reading is the wrong term. I listen to a lot of nonfiction books and then I read fiction books. So the nonfiction book that I'm currently listening to, although I also buy the hardcover book because I like to go back and underline stuff and digest it and keep it and look at it, um, <laughs> is a book called Medical Apartheid, um, which the same book club that we read the culture code for, um, we're reading, it's an emergency medicine and EMS book club. So we're reinvigorating it after COVID where I invite people to my house, now vaccinated people. The invitation goes out to EMS providers in our region and to my students and also to faculty and staff in our emergency department. Um, and then I invite them to my house. I make like taco bar and dessert and we talk about a book. Um, Medical apartheid is a heavy book, but it's a uh, I feel like I should have read it in med school, except it wasn't written then. But it's about the use of Black Americans in, or really sort of the use of the Black body in sort of medical research and experimentation in a depth that is so much more than anything we ever learn in school. I think a lot of what we learn is like, you know, you learn Civil War, you learn slavery, Civil War, Tuskegee. And then like civil rights movement. And you realize like this was such an ultra abridged history. And I think this book is really interesting in this particular time. Um, It's a hard book to listen to, um, like from an emotional perspective. I can only imagine what it's like if I were Black to listen to this book. It's really useful in framing things on like vaccination rates and other things and sort of distrust of the healthcare system. I'm about halfway through now, but it's it's a heavy book. And then the other book I'm reading is I read a lot of fantasy books. So I'm finishing up the Mistborn trilogy. I Sometimes I need things to completely move my brain away from reality and just listen to a good, and just like read a good story. Do you read, I'm, I'm thinking you only read on actual paper books. Do you have an e-reader? I tried. I'm not a fan. I'm not either. <laughs> not at all. So I listen to books, but I like having the actual paper book as opposed to my husband who reads thousand page novels on his phone, which I cannot even begin to understand. 
Interesting. That's a good place to have it because if instead of scrolling, he's actually making good use of his time when he's looking at his phone in a moment, you know, like when we have these little down five minutes or whatever. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I think my brain would explode. I can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) But he just, he just does. That's, that's like, that's his thing. So. Well, I don't know what the personality difference is. I don't, (laughs) I have not, I spent a lot of time thinking about people and behaviors and personalities. Almost all my friends, they love their physical book to hold it, underline, take notes, put it on the shelf, refer back to it, give it away. Um, So I can't figure, I don't know many people that use e-readers, but I know there's a bunch that, I mean, there's got to be, right? Who are these people? It's your husband. It's my husband. Yeah. (laughs) I think part of it is the why are you reading the book? I don't know. Maybe not, but I just have this, I mean, when I had to get rid of my textbooks from college, you know, like I lugged these things around. I was never like the sell the textbook back, even though it was like the worst financial plan ever. Cause I like felt mm-hmm. emotionally <laughs> connected to these <laughs> books. Um, yeah. and it's sort of like, you know, I don't hoard many things. Um, but I, but I hoard books. I'm the same. When I, when I go through my minimal, minimalist phase, right. Like when I try to be minimalist in areas of my life. Anywhere, anywhere near getting close to the minimalism with books. Like I have books on my shelf that have been sitting there for years that I just plan to read. Like I'm just, they're just sitting there waiting on me till when I think it's the right time. So it's not just books that I have read. It's stuff I'm planning. And some of them I look at them, I'm like, I can't wait till I'm old and retired. I'm going to totally read that book. And that's a really long time from now. (laughs) I have I actually, that's actually one of the ways that I end up listening to books is I buy all these books that I'm like, oh, I want to read that. So I actually have a bunch of books that I started on. You showed me that you were reading the book User Friendly, and I haven't read the book yet, but I bought it. And then I bought a couple other books that were sort of like that. And they're sitting in a stack of books that I mostly intend to read. But eventually I stare at it long enough that I end up getting the book on audible and I listen to it while I like garden or commute or whatever. But yes, I have the stack by the nightstand. I have like a stack on my desk and they're just, for me, it's just a reminder of all the good stuff that there is to read, like all the things that I still have to learn. So I used to just feel guilty about it, but to me, I find it, I don't know. It's like an optimism thing. Like there's so many good things. Like I can't wait till I get to ex- be exposed to the ideas in that book. I just need to find um, a time to, I forgot which book it was. I think it's the book Essentialism that talks about how Bill Gates does like a two week reading vacation every year or something. I may be referencing that wrong, but it's like he goes and just has like a, a two week where he just reads things. And I was like, oh, I need to figure out that life plan where I can just like <laughs> two weeks and just read stuff. But so essentialism was a book that I first listened to on audiobook, and then I bought the actual book because I wanted to have it. And I like it sitting on the bookshelf, just sitting there because I look at it sometimes and it reminds me of all the principles in that book and it's really good stuff. Yeah. Sometimes I look at it and I say, I still look like the cover, you know, the cover has that <laughs> squiggle of all the different directions Mm -hmm. and I was like well maybe there's a little less squiggle and a little bit more direction but um it does remind me to say no sometimes so one of the main things I wanted to get out of this episode 
I wanted to, I think the overall hope is that it will encourage a medic out there to just learn to enjoy reading. They may have gotten turned off to reading at some point in their life and usually formal education does that. Or they spend their time, and I'm I'm this, I spend more time reading social media when, you know, I'm like, man, it's been an hour. I could have read, powered through a big chunk of a book. Um, so, you know, we've when we have downtime at the station or whatever, what that might look like to pick up a, you know, a book instead. So it's kind of just encouraging people to think about if they can fit reading into their life if they don't already. So in that kind of vein, if if a new paramedic were listening or one of your graduates from your program where you teach, if you were to gift them a book, what's the what's the one book you would send them, do you think? Um, can I cheat and exclude my graduates because I make all my graduates read this book? <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The book would be Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. And I know I'm going to seem a little bit like a liar because I said the books that I love to read are not medical. And this is a medical book, but it's really a book about humanism and connection. And the reason I would also gift the book rather than have them read it. And then this year we actually, normally our class just has the book and then, you know, they turn it in like a textbook. And this year we just were like, we're just going to like give it to everybody. Just keep your book because every time I read it, I get something else out of it. Hmm, That's interesting because then they could also gift it to someone later. It's true. I want to hear kind of the why, what's so important inside that book. But before you answer that, I want to hover around and talk about Atul Gawande because I think he is the perfect author for a new paramedic to read. He's a really good storyteller. There's a book called Complications, and then he has another one called Better. And in both of those, each chapter is usually a different case and really captivating. It's the medical memoir genre, but it has a point, right? It's not just stories. He's usually trying to, they all kind of share a common theme. And Complications is the one. I, If I were going to, and I have gifted this book to new paramedics, I loved Complications. And it it got me back into reading that. And then and there's another book called Stiff by Mary Roach. <laughs> I totally read that book. It, I enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and those two books combined, they're just really good authors. Atul Gawande writes for The New Yorker. Like they're just good writers. And I think, so I would also gift an Atul Gawande book, but a different one, the Complications book. The person who's probably gifted me the most books in my adult life is actually my mother-in-law who gifted me complications and turned me on to Atul Gawande. But Being Mortal is my favorite of all his books. So the reason I read Being Mortal is I'd read, he also wrote something called The Checklist Manifesto. And Being Mortal came out when I was in residency. So I was on an educational elective or something. So in residency, I felt like I didn't have as much time to read, although I still read some. And it really spoke to me because at that point, I would say that I was probably in one of my more negative uh, spaces in my career. You know, I had three kids when I started residency and I felt sort of really stressed out and guilty all the time. And on top of that, I think in emergency medicine, um, it's easy to get in this rut where you just feel like People come in, you do the thing, they go out, um, and sometimes you feel like you do things to people, not for people. And I just um, had lost, not lost, but the joy of medicine, I think, was a little distant at the time. Um, When I read this book, the first time I read this book, so the first lessons that I got out of it, it really talked about what is 
what is it that makes life worth living for people? So from a clinical perspective, this was really useful to me as far as finding a way to connect with my patients as humans and having conversations about their value so I could provide as much as possible really, you know, you know, we talk about evidence-based practice as being like all research-based, but the third tenet of it is actually patient values. And so this question that comes up in this conversation with this palliative care doctor of what is it that makes life worth living as a guiding principle in the care you provide was really useful. And I've used it in my clinical care ever since. But that same question um, made me sort of reflect on my own life (laughs) and think about what was it that was most important to me, because I think it's really easy to get into the grind of work and I have to get these projects done and I have to get all this other stuff done. And in the book, when this palliative care doctor asked her father what it was that made life worth living for him, he said, eating ice cream and watching baseball, you know, like these are the things like if I could do that, I'd be happy. And it made me think like, I don't think you can read this book and not reflect on what your answer would be to that question. And I realized that my answer to that question was, I just want to be able to see my kids grow up and participate meaningfully in their lives. And I realized that's not how I was ordering my priorities. Um, That's not how I was making my decisions. That book really changed that. I'm definitely like not perfect. And I, I think like far from perfect. I don't necessarily have this great balance and I still like work a ton, but it helped me get to the point where when I am choosing work or having work instead of family time, that I do it for the joy of what I do for a living and with recognition of what that trade-off is. And I look at things from the perspective of that trade-off. I've learned a lot of things from this book, like subsequent years, but I think that that was the first lesson and that's why I found it so meaningful. My head's just spinning with all these kind of follow-up questions. The first thing is, you're right, is spinning with is like what I'm kind of reflecting on that question for myself. I'm also thinking about a patient that I had in clinical recently who keeps falling and he lives alone. I talked to the medics and it sounds like his house was pretty like disrepair, kind of hoarding situation. And I started talking to him about what his daily life looked like. I think I was trying to get to that answer. It's like, what is it he's doing all day long that brings him joy or meaning? But I never really fully got to that exact question. Do you ask people that exact question? Um, I asked it, especially when the patients are really sick. Uh-huh. Um, well, this guy, I was thinking he was going to end up, I, I, I was thinking to myself, like he keeps going home. He's alone. He keeps falling, staying on the floor all night long. So I was thinking, oh, this seems like that's where it's going, right? Like he's going to be nursing home or something's about to happen in his life, right? A big fork in the road. So um, I ask things like that. So there's a few questions. There's the one question I ask everybody that was actually brought on by a project I later did, but I think can all be sort of tied back to me reading this book is what is your biggest worry? That's a good one. Sometimes it's like, I think my abscess is cancer, right? And I can address their biggest worry. But sometimes, you know, it's loss of independence or that my kids don't do this. And sometimes you get a lot deeper answers. I actually did a project in residency with my colleague, Alicia Oberly, who was my co-chief, where we handed out cards in the waiting room that said, what's your biggest worry? And people wrote down their answers. And it was very illuminating. But part of that is people are there for a reason, 
and building that shared model, that connection of what making sure that you address the things that they're most worried about. I give this example. I had a, a guy who came in with just right arm weakness and he was right-handed and it wasn't profound. He wasn't like flaccid in the right arm, but it was, he had pretty significant weakness in the right arm. He was within the TPA window and we're talking about, you know, risks and benefits in TPA. And so I asked him, there's risks associated with there's potential benefits. We can go through the data, but I think for us to sort of guide you through that data, I just want to ask you like, what is it that makes life worth living for you? Like, what is your most important thing? And he said, playing catch with my grandson. And I said, well, are you right-handed or are you left-handed? He says, I'm right-handed. There, that sort of makes easier to provide guidance about what the plan would be there. I think we always sort of make assumptions for people, but really as healthcare providers, healthcare clinicians, and EMS as part of that, our goal is to navigate people through decisions in a way that aligns with their values. But if we don't know what their values are, if we don't know what's most important to them, then we're navigating according to our beacon or what standard of care beacon there is, not theirs. And I've realized after asking that question a lot of times, I always have the possibility to be surprised by the answer. Um, Now I read the book and I see like the depth of this. It's not just like the act of asking the question, but the act of asking the question builds a connection and humanity. I think sometimes in like the raw (laughs) H&P, You don't have, it's like why I always ask people the names of their cat or their dog or the breed or whatever, because if you can actually build that connection as a person and a person, there's benefit, I think, to the patient and that it makes you feel like you care about them. But I actually think um, somewhat selfishly, I think the greatest benefit is to us. When we go in to do assessments. They're so worried about their medical assessment. They're, they're brand new, right? Practicing this, practicing new physical exam techniques. I just kind of remind them and recenter everything and just say, when we leave the room, we, like, we want to know who this person is. Like, I want to know them. And I think that calms people down because it's just more about getting to know someone and talking to them than performing perfectly, right? You know, one of the, the wrong interview techniques that is used things is like we... We're like, we have this checklist, right? Like, you got to get all the information. I got to get this. I got to get the onset or whatever. And the data, so there was this study that was done um, in emergency medicine where they looked at how long it took people to interrupt. And it was something like 11 or 13 seconds. And then they did a study where they looked at, when they listened to the recordings of somebody who asked an open-ended question and then like shut up and let the <laughs> person talk versus somebody who had very directed questioning style. And then they timed how long did it take to get all the questions answered, right? Like all the components of the H&P done. And the reality is there are people, right, who require a little bit more guidance when you ask questions. But for the most part, if you ask an open-ended question and then shut up, the patient will tell you the information that you need to hear. And you can ask a couple follow-up questions versus you asking a bunch of directed questions. And the total time was the same. You didn't actually save any time by like interrogating the patient to make sure you got all the information. So sometimes it's better you sit down and just listen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then 
you can ask some follow-up and clarification questions. Just wait till they stop talking. So this is uh, (laughs) so reminiscent of an episode I did called Listening in Color because I referenced a study about the interruptions. I think the interruption study. In my reading, they were talking about that being the patient's opening monologue and how important it was to not interrupt that initial download from the patient to not interrupt that because it just severs everything, right? Their trust and their openness and all of that. But that listening in color episode, if you're listening right now and you haven't heard that episode, I would send you back to listening in color. So it sounds like you read being moral. You read that more. You've read that more than once. Yeah. So every year now, well, in my paramedic program, other than like their text, it's like the only other required book. One of the things I do in this uh, class book club is we talk about some of the larger principles and themes, but I've also, I have a log of all the places EMS is mentioned in the book, which is something that I did on subsequent readings. Like I, I'd read it a few times, I gifted it to a bunch of people, but I hadn't, until I had it in this class, I never sort of read it with an EMS mindset. The one thing that is somewhat disappointing in this book is the portrayal of EMS, And in every single situation that EMS is portrayed, they're rushing somebody quickly somewhere. (laughs) I want them to be the types of clinicians that that's, that is not the only, right? Like rushing somebody somewhere is not really, although sometimes the public sees that's what EMS is, that they are so much more than that. And then if this book got rewritten later on, um, that somewhere in there would be a really compassionate conversation with <laughs> Yeah. So to prepare myself, because I never write down my notes other than I finally wrote down my notes of all the places EMS is, I, I skim the book every single year. And the funny thing is every single time I read it, I find some other thing that I find really beautiful. You sent me a picture of your bookshelf. It looked like your home office, I think, because I've talked to you enough on Zoom. I recognized it a little bit. And by the way, that was like my vulnerability moment because I'm always embarrassed at what a mess I am. <laughs> I sent you my messy desk. That was my exercise in vulnerability. So you, I saw on your, and your, the reason I brought up this picture was because, well, I looked through them all and I was like, oh yeah, I've read that. One of my favorites that was on there is Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. Love that book. And then I also saw Brene Brown's Daring Greatly was was on your desk. It looked like it had been out recently. Have you been poking around in that one? That was the last book I read prior to the current book. Had you kind of tuned into her stuff before? I did. Um, so this is actually related to the culture code because the culture code talks a lot about vulnerability the demonstration of vulnerability, how basically to become, they called it invulnerable, but to become invulnerable as a group, you have to share vulnerability with each other, right? There has to be that trust. And so I got interested in her because, you know, the first book of hers that I read is simply called The Gifts of Vulnerability. And I was Mm -hmm. like, right, is that the name of it? The Gifts of Vulnerability. Oh, it's The Gifts of Imperfection. Yeah, so it's not the gifts of vulnerability, it's the gifts of imperfection. And when you read the summary of it, it's like all about vulnerability. I read that first, and then I I got on to uh, Daring Greatly. You know, it's not just for yourself. I have 
sort of an educator perspective on it, which is, or really sort of EMS medical director perspective on it, which is, I think we could infuse the culture of EMS a lot more with vulnerability, that the way that bad outcomes or mistakes and the rest of it is handled. We have a culture that makes people want to sort of hide those things and not talk about them. Uh, Whereas talking about outcomes that you wish would be different in front of others is a very vulnerable place to be in EMS. Um, But I think it's a way that we can actually create a much more healthy culture if we're able to talk about those things as a group and then lean into them and say, what can we learn um, and to really grow and to actually build, you know, one of the things that she talks about is vulnerability is intimately connected with joy um, because you have to sort of feel hard things to feel good things as well. How do we build that um, and, and establish that that is where we should be? And so she talks a lot about that from different perspectives. There's also good parenting tips in there too. <laughs> I've seen her TED Talks and I've seen it. She has a special on Netflix, which I highly recommend it. Have you seen the Netflix special? I did. I really liked it. She's funny. I mean, she's... She's funny. (laughs) I found her very funny and pleasantly funny because the topic is heavy. I mean, she... I think originally she did research on shame and that's what got her to vulnerability is... um, And think about like a heavy topic, right? But she she has great... She's a good storyteller. She's got this great like Texas accent. She's funny. I mean, there's something about being able to laugh and joke about yourself while sort of like exposing, um, exposing things that are uh, sort of otherwise painful or that you'd be ashamed of in such a way that she's funny in that like, we can all laugh haha because it's a shared experience. Do you mean it's shared because she's, she shares such um, relatable things that all humans have kind of experienced it? Yes. That's what, exactly Uh what I mean. Um, Yeah. But rarely talked about. Exactly. Rarely talked about. Um, Mm -hmm. I just, I think um, there's so many things sort of like, you know, the picture of my messy desk that I sent you. (laughs) Like, I think there's so many things where we somehow are afraid that people are going to figure out how imperfect we are. um, Mm -hmm. When really, like, part of what makes us who we are is sort of the the imperfections, you know? Um, Yep. I loved getting that picture because you and I have video conference a lot when we were making that pre-conference course. The view of you was always from the bookshelf and I had never seen the actual bookshelf, right? Your your webcam was pointing out and I could see your husband and I think his, he has like a equivalent desk right there. And, yep. and I think, I think I could see that he had shelving and I was like, man, I wonder if she, and you would occasionally look up and I was like, I bet she has shelves up there. And it was so, um, it was so nice to see the full picture. So thanks for sharing it. Do you know what my favorite part of the lift assist episode was? Um, hang on. When we when you talk to your son on the phone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I I played that for him. <laughs> I was like, I was like, you can hear him. You can actually hear him. You you can totally hear him. And it's like, it's so it's so him. Yeah, it was funny. Sweet. Oh it's my god, sweet. my chicken. My chickens were so cute today, but we should end. The, we should, we should end this before your computer dies and it doesn't download. 